Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, April 9th, 2018. Thus begins the worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And boy, got to tell you, the sermons you all have been sending me, they're awful. (laughs) Just outright terrible. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, <gasps> self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put out there, it's not even biblical, like not even close. So many people don't even try anymore to make it even appear that they're teaching anything biblical. And yet evangelicals apparently pride themselves on, well, what they believe is biblical. It's the weirdest thing, the strangest thing. It's like a strong delusion has overtaken much of the church as it is in outright rebellion. Uh, by teaching doctrines that no Christians have actually believed, yes, you know, listening to pastors and preferring pastors who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear rather than what God's Word really says and means. <sighs> now, that, now that I've got that off my chest, let's, <laughs> let's talk about what we're going to be doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So we begin our worst Easter sermon of the year contest today in hour number two. Let me kind of give you the lay of the land as far as what the plans are for the next week. And so we're going to try to have normal episodes Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday will technically be a light episode, but by light that means we may have two or more uh, worst Easter sermon entrance being considered for your consideration. Does that make any sense? Considered for yeah, you get the idea. So uh, so here's how this works: is that each day uh, there will be one or more. Like on Wednesday and Friday, there will be more than one. Uh, uh, you know, bad Easter sermon 
for you to consider. You will then, as an audience, vote on who gets the uh, the much coveted no, it's not coveted at all uh, award as the 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 worst Easter sermon of the year preached for 2018. And you'll be able to vote at fightingforthefaith.com. And so that you know, it is our plan at the moment. We are trying to work the bugs out of this is that um, that once the voting begins, you have one week to vote, and that we're planning on having a live stream episode on YouTube uh, you know, <laughs> to announce the, uh, the winner of the worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. So you'll be able to tune in on YouTube live, literally live, and uh, we will uh, be giving samples from each of the, uh, the contestants who are up for consideration, at least the ones that are in the top three. That's kind of the idea, and we'll have an award ceremony. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, confetti, who knows? We're, we're still kind of working out the details on how we're going to do this, but it'll be the following week. So uh, the uh, voting begins this Friday night and will last a week, and then once it's cut off, we will have a live stream to announce who the winner is. So that that's kind of our, our idea. So keep that in mind. Uh, it'll be the very first ever live stream that we've ever done. And uh, we'll even try to throw in, you know, uh, an, an opportunity for some of the people in the audience to ask questions. We'll, we'll see, <laughs> see how that works out. But uh, so keep that in mind. We're still working the bugs out. And, you know, unless there's some technical difficulties and we can't quite get the live stream thingy to work, then uh, you know, you know, we'll have to go with a different plan. But our plan right now, and we're still working the bugs out, is to actually have a <clears throat> live stream awards ceremony. So I might even wear a tie for the occasion. That being said, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Kind of still going with the theme of bad Easter sermonage. We're going to uh, play some of the people who didn't make the cut. Um, and uh, we're going to begin with a woman by the name of Karen Lindvig and uh, her sermon titled Rising Up, Rising Up. And this will be a classic example of, uh, of a sermon where, you know, the different elements of the resurrection accounts are allegorized. And, and this is a woman who clearly is not a believer and she should not be preaching to anybody the best way is, uh, that I can put it. So uh, we'll be listening to her rising up sermon. And uh, then we're going to be doing an emergent church update. We're going to be heading over to Vinings Lake Church. I think it's Corey Reese who is the uh, the guy who's in charge there. And we're going to be listening to uh, a portion of his Easter sermon where he basically claims that whether or not Jesus physically, actually, for real, got out of the grave, it, that that's not the important part. No, 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 no. Yeah. In fact, if you're going to be talking that way, you, according to him, you're kind of missing the whole point of the resurrection accounts. <clears throat> we'll compare what he says to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. And then the last half of the first hour it will be an extended vision-casting leader update, and I don't even know where to put this as far as, um, you know, it's a bad Easter sermon, but it didn't make the cut. But we're going to be heading over to Celebration Church where Stovall Weems is uh, the vision casting leader uh, holding court there. And I am not making this up. He spent his Easter sermon 
explaining how on Good Friday he had an open vision and he himself has has um, experienced and met the risen Jesus. Yeah, I know you're thinking, why didn't that make it into the like? It's it's such an outlier that uh, I didn't put it into the this year's contest. But I mean, this is the type of sermon that. Uh, uh, recalls what Jesus says in the um, Olivet Discourse in uh, Matthew uh, 24 and 25 about false Christs. And if you if somebody says he's in the inner room, don't believe him. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. And it, it's like hellfire, brimstone, sulfur kind of weird stuff going on there. And then in hour number two, it is contestant number one. And I I kind of waffled and went back and forth. I really was trying to figure out who was going to lead off this year's worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And many of you have sent me as for consideration uh, Stephen Furtick's um, Easter sermon. And uh, Stephen Furtick has made the cut this year. He is like the worst of a particular type of Easter sermon, and so we'll be listening to uh, Stephen Furtick and his sermon titled, It Can't End Like This. It Can't End Like This. And uh, yeah, it's so... (laughs) All I can say is buckle up. We've got a lot of ground that we need to cover, and um, since we're going to start by uh, listening to Karen Lindvig's Rising Up Easter sermon, let's do this. I didn't know you was going to start out with Looking for a city built above Looking for a city Where I'll never die Where the saint in millions Never say goodbye There we'll meet our Savior And our loved ones too Okay, so uh, we're heading to Seattle, uh, where Karen Lindvig is the uh, pastrix at a uh, church there, uh, Seattle Unity Church, and we're going to be listening to a sermon of hers that was not this year's sermon, so you kind of get the idea, but I somebody had submitted it, and uh, we put it off as, uh, as one that we wanted to highlight because of a particular kind of way of twisting the accounts of the resurrection, and Karen Lindvig does a really good job of this. So uh, let's uh, listen in to her sermon titled, Rising Up. Here we go. Rise up. Rise up. Whatever dead condition there is in your life right now can be resurrected. Right, yeah, dead conditions in my life can be resurrected, you know, because Jesus walked out of the tomb. I don't think she believes that, but uh, that Jesus actually did that, but you kind of get the idea. So it's a weird kind of allegorizing going on here. And whatever blocks that are in your way right now can be removed. 
We yeah, you know, those stones in your life. See new life everywhere, and this is the promise of Easter. We see proof of this as the earth awakens from its winter sleep. Yeah, no, actually, the promise of Easter is that we, too, will rise from the grave physically when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we celebrate the return of life. And the truth is, this celebration has been happening for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It began with with the the, the worship got uh, the worship of goddesses of. <laughs> yeah, so she's uh, likening the story of Easter to you know pagan goddess worship. Yeah, I, that wow. Uh, Ishtar and Demeter and Persephone. Yeah, I'm sorry, but Ishtar is not is synonymous with Easter. Yeah, that's two different things. Persephone and Eostre and April was traditionally the month to celebrate the goddess, to celebrate life and to celebrate fertility. And what says fertility more than bunny rabbits and eggs? Really? <laughs> So we have our celebration of the Easter bunny and the Easter eggs that have carried over from thousands of years to celebrate this amazing experience of life. We see it in the flowers pushing up through the earth. We see it in the trees and the, in the buds and we see it in the sun. Hooray. Yes. Isn't it wonderful? It's like seven, eight o'clock and it's like, whoa, it's still light. What's that? It's like, I have a life again. It's wonderful. So we're celebrating the return of the sun, the S-U-N, and we're also celebrating the return of the sun, S-O-N. We're celebrating the uh, full expression of the Christ Jesus, of the Christed self. Of the Christed self? What is that? Easter is the experience of fully expressing and being who each one of us is called to be. Imagine if you could be present fully and completely in all of your glory, in all of God's glory expressing through you. And Jesus personifies this experience a thousandfold. It goes from being Jesus to the Christ to the resurrected Christ Jesus on this day. This sounds like Gnosticism to me. I want to review the week a little bit because when we left him last Sunday, Palm Sunday, he was at the height of his ministry. People were throwing palm branches in front of him and saying, Hosanna in the highest and throwing the cloaks and, and assuming that he was going to remove the Romans from Jerusalem and they were going to reclaim Jerusalem. And instead, Jesus' message was of a different kingdom. It was of a kingdom within. And what we noticed last week that what Jesus practiced so masterfully was that he practiced the law of non-resistance, that he allowed... Jesus practiced the law of non-resistance. What? ...events to happen as they were meant to happen as... So Jesus is kind of a Gandhi, okay... To stopping them and trying to control the outcome of events, he let things happen even though it meant pain for him. On Thursday night, he was arrested, he was crucified and beaten on Friday, and then he was laid in the tomb, and Mary... And the other women were preparing his body for burial. But because it was the Sabbath, it was Shabbat, they had to stop at sundown. 
And so we pick up our story on Sunday morning when the women are on their way to finish the anointing of the body. And we can find this account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I want to share with you a bit from Mark. So the women were, were on their way to the, to the tomb. And very early on this first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now, and this is a big stone, right? It weighs like, what, 10 tons? And they're getting there. It's like, uh-oh, wait a minute. Who's going to move that stone away for us so that we can get in there and that we can finish anointing his body? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they re-entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now, in the book of Matthew... They go to the tomb and there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And of course, Jesus is not in the tomb because Jesus has fully and completely resurrected. Who is going to roll away the stone? There are so many aspects of the Easter story that we literally could spend weeks going through each piece and trying to figure out what what is the meaning and 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 what. Is- yeah, tell us about that fully r- risen thing. What does that mean? Mean for me, and I wanted to pick a couple of things. This morning that I wanted to focus on. And one is the return that Jesus is making. We have been studying this year the idea of who are we called to be. And looking at the hero's journey. And Jesus fully and completely fulfills that whole purpose and returns. But the other piece that I wanted us to look at this morning is the stone. Because Easter is about removing the stones. No, it's not. You see, there was one stone. And it just so happened to be the, you know, the door into the grave. There were not multiple stones. And, you know, that's just a small detail of the story of Jesus' resurrection. You know, that was the thing that they had rolled over the tomb in order to keep the stench from getting out too much. You know what I mean? Um, wow. What are the stones? The stones are obstacles that stop you from being who you are called to be. No, they're not. No biblical text talks about the stone in front of Jesus' tomb in this way. And by the way, this is, this is the reason why I wanted you to hear this woman who, you know, clearly, you know, a Seattle Unity Church, you know, I don't even think you can call it really a Christian denomination, but... I wanted you to hear this from this liberal pastrix woman because when we get to the Stephen Furtick sermon today, you're going to note that he has a lot in common with Karen Lindvig. A lot in common. So if you had to think for a moment about, you know, who am I and what am I called to be and what is it, what is that boulder that sometimes feels monumental that I can't push through, that it may fe- I may feel helpless to remove them or we cannot see our way out? What is blocking you from who you are called to be? The- what am I called to be exactly? Stones can feel 
again, monumental. There's a song um, called Roll Away the Stones by Mumford and Sons. I want to share with you a couple of the lines. Yeah, can't wait to hear it. Yeah. Roll away your stone and I'll roll, I'll roll away mine. Together we can see what we will find. Don't leave me alone at this time, for I'm afraid of what I'll discover inside. Because you told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul, and I have filled this void with things unreal, and all the while my character it steals. So when we feel like we're locked in this tomb, yeah, and it's like this... Feel like we're locked in a tomb. Yeah, it, that would mean I feel dead. That would mean I'm dead. Boulder is in the way, and we've had a crucifixion experience. A, a, a crucifixion experience. Hmm. Is that like listening to a sermon like this? Probably, because we all have them, right? We all have them on, on different levels. It can feel like we fill up the void with things that are superficial and unreal. Yeah? Yeah, like this sermon. Like addiction or shopping or you name it. We have a million of them. We have, we have so many that we are distracting ourselves instead of blowing away that stone and being who we are called to be. Yeah, are you blowing away the stones in your life so that you can be what you're called to be after your crucifixion experience? You'll note that this is just utter nonsense. This is no way to handle the biblical text. And this is the whole point. I mean, the whole point is Jesus bodily got out of the grave. You know, nobody's done that. You know, and he still is alive today. He's the first fruits of the new creation. He's you, you kind of get the idea. Uh, so um, we've got a problem here in that when you do this with the elements of the text, you literally rob Jesus of all of his glory, and you make the resurrection account about something that it's not about. It's not about the stone. It's about Jesus bodily raising from the grave. All right, moving along, it's time for an emergent church update. Let's do this. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. Over there on the triangle is Corey Deese of Vining Lakes Church, and this is their rendition of Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra. Oh, such an avant garde recreating of this masterpiece. Notice that they've freed themselves from the modernist definitions of notes, which are so limiting, and they're just being led now by the Spirit himself. Oh, listen as it comes to a crescendo! Can't you just feel the freedom? Feel it! Feel it! Oh, 
yeah. Brings tears to my eyes every time. So, like I said, we're heading to Vinings Lake Church. Corey Deese is the guy who uh, holds court there, and he's one of these Rob Bell wannabes. And uh, we're going to listen to a portion of his Easter sermon where he literally is going to kind of go with this postmodern approach. Oh, there are people who deny that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. And there's those who insist that it's an actual literal account. But to, to insist on that or to deny it is to miss the whole point. The, the, the postmodern way fi- finds a more beautiful thing in the resurrection than whether or not Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Yeah, I wish I was making that up. Here's Corey Deese. Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, for those watching online, thanks for watching. And uh, for those listening to our podcast, so glad that you're listening. Okay, uh, here's what I want to do. I'd like to give, uh, I have a, ladies and gentlemen, I have a sermon to give. And it's kind of been in my bones for a while. There's like this, uh, there's, there's this writer, uh, Jeremiah, in the narrative that he uses this phrase. He's like, it's like a fire shut up in my bones. And yeah, it sounds like he's doing his best Rob Bell impersonation there. So I just want to blow the whole place up today, if you're feeling good about that. Like nothing says Easter but like lighting a match, pouring gasoline on it, and exploding the whole place. So I think that'd be great. So I want to give a sermon, um, and so I want you to lean in with me, and I want to talk about this resurrection okay now he even has rob bell's cadence the way he delivers things this guy is totally imbibed on way too many numa videos well things i want to read uh if you're new to the biblical narrative uh there is uh there's four writers that are called the gospels matthew mark luke and john all four record the account of this resurrection okay I want to read John's version for many reasons, but John, uh, probably one of my favorite of the Gospels, um, but the way he writes, the way that the author crafts this narrative around the resurrection is fantastic. So I want to read that. Uh, Before I do, let me frame what's about to happen, okay? Um, Strap on your seatbelt, ladies and gentlemen. Glad you're here. All right. I want to frame this, then we're going to read the text, and then all I want to do today is talk about two words, just two, death, resurrection. That's it. All right. And then we're out of here and we're all going to go wherever it is we're going to our families and we're going to gather around um, a ham because nothing says resurrection like gathering around a food that was against uh, Jesus in the Jewish culture. Um, <laughs> but we're free Gentiles. Give us bacon. All right. Good Lord, liberals. All right. Here we go. Okay. I have observed... Um, I've observed that generally when you talk about the resurrection, you have two extremes. Two extremes. Notice there's two extremes now. Okay. You have on one side an unquestioned, literal, historical fact that you must believe in in order to go to some place called heaven. Mm-hmm. So that's an extreme. Yeah. Let me let me read to you from the extremist. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Notice the two extremes here. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, your faith is futile. 
and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. So notice the Apostle Paul is one of these fellows who, according to Corey Deese, is an extremist. He believes in the literal resurrection and believes that it is improper for Christians to deny that Christ has risen from the dead because in so doing, if Christ has not been literally raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain and our faith is futile. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So notice the Apostle Paul would be one of the extremists that Corey Deese is trying to ward us off from. Okay. I have discovered and observed there's another side of the resurrection of the great moderns of our time, if you're around our spiral dynamics. To- Modernists, yeah. That they look at a literal resurrection and say, this is the most ridiculous, pre-rational myth of fairy tales and fables, a guy rising from the dead? Come on. It's 2018. What I want to do today is I want to address both of those scenarios. Yeah, both of them are extreme. By the way, uh, let me read to you from the Nicene Creed, one of the earliest creeds uh, that Christians have confessed literally for, what, 17 centuries now? Um and uh, talking about Jesus Christ, and I, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, and who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, notice this confesses the virgin birth, was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, historical narrative. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you'll note the Christians uh, from the earliest have been confessing that Jesus is you know, physically raised from the grave. What I want to do is I want to frame the engine of this sermon around the fact that I find both those approaches very boring. And I- Oh, yeah, really boring, really, really boring. Yeah, you know, believing that Jesus literally rose from the grave. Yawner. I actually find both those approaches missing the entire point of the narrative of death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. So it misses the entire point of the narrative of death and resurrection. Again, I just I find that weird. And the reason why I find it weird is because, well, you know, uh, the gospel text that was the assigned uh, text that, you know, I mentioned yesterday in my sermon, I was actually preaching on 1 John but uh, I do recall that uh, yesterday's gospel reading, if you uh, follow the lectionary, was quite fascinating in this regard, and that is is that uh, it was right there in the Gospel of John, and uh, and the fact that Jesus, when he appeared to the disciples, you know, made a point of you know making a beeline to Thomas. Because he didn't believe that Jesus rose from the grave. In fact, he insisted that he wouldn't believe unless he um, actually touched 
the risen Christ. Yeah, this is uh, the uh, signed gospel text from the three-year lectionary. Uh, John chapter 20, 19 through 21, on the evening of that day, the day of the resurrection, yeah, this would be the first Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus, you know, at, you know, after the resurrection, made a point of saying, take a look, boys, here's the nail prints in my hands, here's the, where the, the Roman soldier thrust his spear into my side. He showed them that on the first day yeah, of the resurrection. And, um, and so he, he, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are already forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, they are already withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side do not be disbelieving, but believing. And then Thomas answered, You are my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I would also point you to the account that is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they had seen a spirit or a ghost. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Hmm. Yeah, it's weird, you know, because Jesus seems to make a point about, listen, boys, I'm physically back from the dead. Touch me. Put your hands here. Take a look at this. Take a, look. a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then you got the Apostle Paul, which we read just a few minutes ago, from 1 Corinthians 15, making the point, if Christ is not raised from the grave, then our faith is in vain. It's futile. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm just saying. All right, let's uh, take a break. We'll finish up a little bit of Corey Deese on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a little more Corey Deese, and then Stovall Weems in his claim that he has witnessed experience the risen Jesus. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss him. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick, QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no. Well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well, not to worry. Not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. Sir. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity. It's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Mm, not worth just looking. Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about the great divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. Actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Lander by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis, or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity, that's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did, they sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No, don't have that. Funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here, thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't, no, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's one o'clock, we're closing for lunch. I, I saw it, I saw it! What? What? I, I saw it over there, Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S? Yes. M-A-Y-E-R? Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The the one without the 
Lutherans they've all got the Lutherans it's a standard religious body the Lutherans are in all the books well I don't like them they baptize infants alright I'll remove it any other religious bodies you don't like I don't like the Presbyterians the Presbyterians right Presbyterians there you are any others you don't like any others the Methodists the Methodists the Methodists the Methodists the Methodists ah oh, yeah they are there you are no Lutherans no Presbyterians no Methodists there's your book I can't buy that it's torn <laughs> I wonder if you have... Um, no, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Huh? <laughs> yes, we got it. I see it somewhere. Yes. <laughs> I found it here. Got it. Yes, here we are, Martin Chemnitz's Two Natures in Christ. There's your book. Now buy it. I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit. I, I don't have any money. I'll take a check. I, I don't have a checkbook. I got a blank one. I, I don't have a bank account. Right. I'll buy it for you. There we are. There's change. There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home. There's wait, your book. wait, wait. What, 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 what? I can't read. You can't read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter one. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's It's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out!
morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that believing in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus isn't an extreme view, but actually what the Bible says and reveals. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and it's based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you would like to support us by becoming a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. You can do that as well. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you do that by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's head back to Vinings Lake Church for just a little bit more as we listen to Corey Deese explain to us about the extremist view that Jesus you know, rose bodily from the grave and how... The story of death and resurrection is so much better than that. Here we go. Did it literally happen? Not the question we're interested in here. I see. Yeah. Okay. For some of you, that may be like, ooh, okay, where are we going? Hang with me, all right? The story is so much more significant than those discussions. And my hope today is that— If that's the case, then why did Jesus show them his hands and his feet and his side and— Invite Thomas to touch him and stuff. I can show you how much more significant this story is than arguing and fighting and debating over those discussions. Because after all, no one can prove it anyways. And even if Mary Magdalene did have an iPhone, all right? By the way, this is why we played Friday's episode. If you haven't heard Friday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, it is definitely worth its weight in gold because of... Well, addressing the apologetic issue, did Jesus bodily rise from the grave? And I hope you found Peter Williams' lecture on this to be helpful because what this guy is saying flies in the face of what the biblical text literally say. And she rolled up to the tomb and she's like, "Mm, got it, boom, all right? (laughs) It still is missing the point of the narrative, then why do the narratives have Jesus making such a big deal about touch me and see a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have? How could that be missing the point of the narrative when Jesus himself, the guy who rose from the grave, took such great pains to make it so that his his disciples believe that he literally physically rose from the grave? It's never been, nor should it be, about us factually proving some historic, literal event. And here's why I say that. Because literalism, factual literalism, drains the story of its power. No, actually, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says denying that he literally rose from the grave drains it of its power. How did you get so backwards, upside down, and inside out, Corey? Because if Mary Magdalene was here and she had an iPhone and she recorded and she put it up on that screen, guess what? 
And that moment, it's drained the story of its magic. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes, I think you get the point. This is crazy go nuts that people would be attending a church like this that literally, I mean, every word that he said flies in the face of exactly what the the gospel narratives eyewitness testimony says. Yeah, that's just bizarre. All right, moving along. It's time for a vision casting leader update. Let's do this. heading over to uh, Celebration Church where the vision casting leader Stovall Weems is uh, holding court as the you know, the supreme leader there. And we're going to note that his Easter Sunday sermon 
literally uh, he read out, uh, just so you know, he read out the account of the resurrection from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 16. And no sooner did he read out that text that he and his wife sat down uh, uh, two chairs around a table uh, to discuss his um, Good Friday encounter. He had an encounter with the, resurrect, with the resurrected Jesus. That's what he's claiming. And I, I got to say that uh, I do not doubt that he had a spiritual encounter. But having listened to this thing in its entirety and the theology that goes with it, I am 100% convinced he did not have an encounter with the risen Jesus, but that he had an encounter with something far more um, sulfur-ridden, shall we say, than that. I mean, this is—I've never seen anything like this in the entire time I have been doing the uh, Fighting for the Faith podcast, and and we're up on 10 years— uh, coming up in June 30th. This is an outlier, and this is the kind of thing that makes me kind of scratch my head and wonder, whoa, wow, something really is off here. I mean, like demonically so. But uh, we're going to um, head over now and listen to Stovall being interviewed by his wife as he claims that he had uh, an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Here we go. I want to talk to you about the experience I had Friday night where I met and I saw our risen Savior. Now listen, listen. I understand the consequences that come with making a statement like that. Okay? I have been walking with God for 28 years. Our church, Celebration Church here in Jacksonville, we have multiple locations around uh, the world uh, we've been- Important to note that Stovall Weems is on the board of directors for Stephen Furtick's Elevation Church. Here in Jacksonville for 20 years, um, nothing like this has ever happened to me. And by the way, his wife preaches sermons there, contrary to the explicit commands of Scripture. I think the longevity and integrity of our ministry speaks for itself. Um, and so I know when people... When I've heard someone said they met Jesus or they saw Jesus, immediately my weird antennas go up. I understand that. Now, I've heard people, met people that I'm like, man, I I think that they did see Jesus or they met Jesus. And so um, when this happened Friday night, I mean, I was really a wreck. Carrie could tell you, like I was just kind of sobbing. I couldn't sleep. This went on into Saturday. Thank goodness you came to church today and not Saturday night. Because in trying to describe, like emotionally, I was a wreck in, in trying to describe what I had experienced, it was just difficult. It was difficult to put into the right language. So thank God I have a wife who has a great command of human language and taught English. And uh, so a lot of what, we, what, what I'm, we're going to talk about is you, you can't really put into words, but we're going we're gonna to do our, our best. And the thing about it is when I was like, what should I share? How much of this should I share? Um, what I realized that today, there's no way I could have preached a message about the resurrection when I was with 
the resurrection Friday night. There's just no way I would have had to sit on the front row and y'all be like, why isn't Stovall preaching? And then somebody tell you, well, he thinks he saw Jesus. Like, I, I don't know what, you know, so, uh, you know, so I know how it is. You're, you're a first time guest here at celebration today. And someone's going to have, Hey, how was Easter? Like, man, and when the pastor said he saw Jesus and, uh, But now that I... This is his sermon. Keep that in mind. He and his wife are both on stage there. Think about it. If God was going to privilege me with having this experience, I can't think of a better time than right before we talk about his resurrection that, that this would happen. And so it happened Friday night. I'm about to turn it over to, to Carrie here. And I do want to say... Yeah, he's turning it over to his wife, Carrie, and Scripture forbids her from doing what she's doing there. There's going to be a part two to this on on Wednesday night. I I could probably talk for several sessions. Don't worry. We're going to... 40 minutes. And uh, and so part two will be Wednesday night, and I open it up to everyone. If you want to go onto our church website on the app and and email in a question about something that I say that you, you want to know something about Jesus that I don't know if I can answer it, but I'll tell you. So now he's become something of an expert on Jesus because of this encounter. I met with him and, uh, and, and it was just a real powerful experience. Yeah. So before we um, get into it, just one more thing. I want to just set some context um, around what you're going to hear. What we're about to share with you is something called a waking vision. And it's, uh, um, it's, it's, it's something that's biblical. We can find it in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, you see this kind of vision when Peter was praying and a sheet came down from heaven and told him that all food was clean to eat. And then he was told to go to the house of Cornelius. And pre- What she's doing right now, Scripture forbids her from doing it during a church service him and baptize him. We uh, see it happen. The the apostle Paul talks about it. Um, But it is very, a very, very rare kind of vision because it happens while you are awake. And the best way I can describe it is that. Now, let me read out a a portion of scripture. Jesus talking in the Olivet Discourse, uh, Matthew 24 verse. Well, let's see here. We're going to start for, for the sake of context We're going to start at verse 21. There will be great tribulation, such as not has been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being will be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather." So this, like I said, this one is an outlier, and and I've listened to it in in its entirety, and the theology in this thing rules it out as an actual encounter with the risen Christ. 
you know, having listened to both this sermon and the other one, and note the, the direct defiance of God's written word with this, you know, his wife instructing and teaching the church. She preaches there regularly. So there's no way this was the actual risen Jesus unless he was calling him to repentance and getting him to get back in line with what Scripture reveals. But uh, that's not what's going on there. You're awake, and you you know everything that's going on, but at the same time, uh, like a window or a something, you have, there's an opening into the heavenly realm, and you are also present there experiencing something that God wants to show you there. So it's very overwhelming because here you are on this side experiencing what you were experiencing, communion, and you're in church, and you're hearing Pastor Paul talk, and then on this side you are having this full-blown meeting with Jesus. And so we're going to try the best we can to um, explain this, but something like that is so heavenly and it's so spiritual. And all we have to describe it are earthly words. And the minute you start to describe it, it's like, oh, that's not quite right. It's like if somebody asks you to describe what love is, you the first the minute you try to define it, you reduce it because you you can't describe it. And that's how Jesus kind of is. It's like, it's so hard to describe everything, but we're going to do our best. So, um, I just wanted to, I'm going to set the tone. I'm going to ask you a few questions. And first of all, this happened. It was during, uh, the good Friday service toward the end. And you went on stage with pastor Paul to take communion. And we were, the way we were doing communion at that service was that we were celebrating communion as, um, the Messianic Jews would do as a Passover Seder. And so, uh, it was it's very, just very different than the way we do it here. But, um, it was very reverent and, and the presence of God was there and it was very strong. And so you're on, you're on the stage and Pastor Paul is, uh, you take the bread, you hold it. Pastor Paul is praying and then he starts to pray in Hebrew. So what happened then? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the Passover Seder, like that's the way that Jesus and his disciples, were taking communion at the last, well, we call it communion, but that's what they were doing at the last. Now I would notice, just point this out, that at this point, people are not asking the question, did Jesus bodily rise from the grave? Nope. They're asking the question, did Stovall Weems actually have a, a real encounter with the risen Jesus? And consider the implications about whether or not he has. Okay, so the emphasis is not on the risen Christ. It's actually on Stovall here. And that's the nefarious subtlety of this type of deception. Supper. And so we were celebrating Jesus, obviously, as our Passover lamb. And so what Pastor Paul did, who's, uh, you know, if you know Pastor Paul, he's just amazing man of God. He goes to church here. He's been in ministry for 40 years. Um, He has a great ministry. He's a Messianic Jew and he has a great ministry around the world to the Messianic community. And so it was at the, the part of the service. I was up here. I was like right there and I had taken a piece of the bread and I had it in my hand. And then Pastor Paul was out front out here And he held up the bread and what he was doing, he would speak it in Hebrew and then he would speak it in English. And so he began to speak in Hebrew, the scripture where Jesus told his disciples, take and and eat. This is my body that was broken for you. And, and, And he began to speak that in Hebrew. And then 
when he spoke that in Hebrew, now I've heard Hebrew before. I've been to Messianic services. I've been to Israel. I'm, I'm familiar with Hebrew. But when he spoke Hebrew, I don't know if it was the second word, halfway through the first word, but like it started with him and then I heard an, another voice. It was another voice in Hebrew. And this voice was a different voice. And it was clear and it was loud. And, and so that started this. Yeah. Now I want to make this clear. I've said it uh, before. I'll say it again. I do not doubt that he had a vision. I absolutely 100% am convinced based upon the theology of this vision. It, it wasn't Jesus. Yeah, so this is really important. So, so um, I've never heard the audible voice of God. I've been walking with God for 28 years. I've never heard the audible voice of God the way God speaks to me. Like many of you who know Jesus, you know, 90% of the time it's through his word and he takes a scripture and he illuminates it. To me and my spirit, that's the quickening, that's the prompting, and you know that's for you, and then you pray how to apply it. Notice the false theology there. Mm-hmm. He's speaking this the other ways that God speaks to me. The best way that I can describe it is just like he drops it in my spirit. It's not a voice. It's there, and then... Um, so he claims that he has received direct revelation before from God, but just not the audible voice of Jesus. It's there. And I'm trying to explain it or whatever. This was different. This was an audible voice. And so when that happened, that's when everything started happening. So, um, you basically heard this voice three times, right? And the- yes. And so, so, and it was, a, how many of you were at the service? Who, who was, how many, some of you were at the, at the Good Friday service? That, so, that might help too. So. Yeah. So it was, it was, I'll put it up in just a second. It was. It was thick in here, wasn't it? I mean, the Holy Spirit was just heavy, heavy in here. And so it was already like I was heavy in the presence of God. And this is very important because this is this kind of the second thing that happened. So we were heavy in the presence of God. Um, and I almost felt, I don't want to say sleepy because I wouldn't go to sleep. It was heavy. And then I heard that voice. And then when I heard that voice, like, okay, that was an audible voice. That wasn't Paul's voice. And then when I heard that voice again, I felt another presence. Now listen, listen, I know the Holy Spirit. I understand theologically that Christ is in us through the Holy Spirit. I understand that we serve one God in three persons. I understand that, okay? The presence here was Jesus. It was the second person of the Godhead. It was the person of Jesus. It was the It was the the person of Jesus. That and so when that happened, I heard the voice again, the Hebrew again. I don't know what Paul is saying at this time. I'm hearing the other voice. And, and we, we have it on uh, video what was going on, but we only have one still shot. I want to show you. So <laughs> that was me for a while.
standing there and Matt, Matt and the staff can tell you, most of the staff down here, they thought something was wrong with me. Um, they were like, what's wrong with pastor? Is he mad? Like they, you know, like, you know, he's, he, they, so, so they weren't, um, you know, they knew something was up, but they obviously didn't think, you know, I was meeting with Jesus and, um, and so, so when he spoke it again, then that's where I would, I would say like, I was in the heavenly, it, it felt like here I was in a trance, but like you said, I was aware, like you couldn't, you, I was aware, but I was in a trance. And then the third time that he spoke it, I was in the heavenly realm. I was, I was like the presence that I felt, he appeared like there he was. And tell a little bit, like, you were there. Where is there? What were you doing? This puts Stovall Weems on par with the Apostle Paul and St. John. Consider the implications. When you were there. Yes, so I was at the Lord's table. I was at, at, it was like the Last Supper, but it wasn't what happened on earth. I wasn't in a dark room and Jesus was sweaty and... I could see the faces of the disciples. I was in like the heavenly version of that Almost room. Like if you could go into heaven, if you were in heaven and you were reenacting that moment or recre- if recreating it, it was the same. You just knew it was it was a model. It was the same. Yes, it was the same thing. And and Jesus, Jesus had the bread. Okay, so Jesus had the bread, and I was there at the table with the disciples, but I didn't see their faces. I didn't see them in flesh and blood. All I can tell you is they were just there. I'm just describing what I experienced. And I was at the Lord's table and then all, and then I looked at the bread, the bread that I had been holding in my hand. And at that moment, I knew that Jesus served me that bread. He had a piece of the broken bread in his hand, he was not looking at me. He was looking out. Like at first, it was like he was looking out to all the congregation, like leading us in the Passover service, remembering him. But then it got. It was like up here was the table, and I was there next to Jesus, and the 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 bread. Like realizing that he served me that bread. And that he was inviting me, he was including me to partake and be part of his table. It just, it started to be overwhelming. Yeah. Now, one of the things you said, um, I mean, I think one of the things that, uh, that the reasons that one of the reasons that we both believe that one of the reasons that this happened to him on Friday night is because there's a lot of people here who Jesus would like to introduce himself to. (laughs) And he would like you to. So the reason why Jesus appeared to Stovall is because there's a lot of other people Jesus would like to introduce himself to. That's weird because Christians have been made for the last 2,000 years through the proclamation of Jesus' actual disciples who became the apostles. Uh huh. 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So now we've got a new way that Jesus is going to introduce himself, and that is through the encounter that Stovall Weems had. What he's like, and he would like for us to tell you what he's like. And so... um yeah, because they have more, they have better information than any other church now because Stovall had this experience. And so I want to ask you a couple of questions that are really cool. So you were, you said that this personality, when you say, when you met Jesus, and you met him like as he was on earth, that is, the, that is what you feel like you were meeting his personality, yeah. not. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so, so. This is the first of many what I would call dichotomies that are two things at once that's hard for the human mind. Opposites. Yeah, they're opposite. So in our human mind, it's hard for us to merge these two. So the first thing that I was taken back with is like Jesus' personality. Like this is how Jesus was when he was on the earth. Like I heard his voice, the tone of his voice. The cadence of his voice, I could sense his mood. I could sense his presence. Like, like, like his, he has a personality. It's like, you know, he was fully God, but many times we forget, you know, the man Christ Jesus, like he came as a man, like, so he has his own unique personality. And that was so watch. So, so, so. So, so what's overwhelming is like, it's like he was new in that way, but at the same time, I felt like I'd known him forever. Like, I, 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 like, 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 like I can't describe the closeness, the closeness that I felt with Jesus. Like he didn't look at me. Like I never saw the front of his face. You know, if you want to know, I mean. Maybe this is no surprise. He was wearing a white garment, you know, (laughs) he had on a white garment. He had brown hair. I could, if there was a sketch person, I could, I could describe it. I'm looking at the side. It was like this. He never welcomed me. He never turned and said, Hey, Stovall. He never any, like it was, I was, I wasn't a guest. I was supposed to be there. He's like this. He's, it's a closeness that you can't describe at the same time. Well, like this is the first time I'm kind of meeting the personality side of Jesus that, that the disciples were familiar with because he walked the earth. So what are some things, some impressions that you got? Cause one of the things you said that was so, so incredible was that his personality, all the attributes of it are communicated through his voice. When you hear his voice, you just, you can just know his character almost through his voice. What, what describe his voice like? Was it calm? Was it soft, loud? Well, he spoke in Hebrew. <laughs> and I don't really know what that means. Oh, you know, I, I don't know how to in, interpret that. Um, but the best way I can say this is his voice was a reflection of his attributes. So the one thing that stuck out to me was, was Jesus was very, he was passionate. He was not emotional, but he was passionate. And, and he was the, the and, you know, the strength, the authority. I mean, we've got. And you're going to know, all of this stuff now is now in the realm of extra biblical revelation. Mm-hmm. 
And now Stovall, I mean, he's got an inside track with um, with Jesus that nobody else has. No, no, not one person. He he and his church, they're super de duper special, and he he knows Jesus better than anybody now because he's had this account. So uh, imagine how this then basically means you can't question him, you cannot challenge him. Everything he says has to be true because Jesus, after all, met with him. And he was he had the Lord's Supper with the uh with the twelve. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, I think you get the point. But uh th- I mean to say this is dangerous is an understatement. And I didn't include I did not include this in our uh, annual worst Easter sermon of the year contest because this is a different beast altogether. And like I've said, I don't doubt that he had an experience, but I'm one hundred percent certain that the experience did not have its origin in the risen Christ. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break when we come back. First contestant in this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, Stephen Furtick. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Peter, James, John, and Paul are all dead. That means there are no living apostles in the church today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe.
two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Worst Easter Sermon of the Year Contest Contestant numero uno Let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Elevation Church. It is contestant number one in our worst Easter sermon of the year contest, and it's Stephen Furtick. And the name of the sermon is It Can't End Like This. And you're going to note that his Bible twisting of the story of the account of Jesus' resurrection is Practically identical to what we heard from that liberal woman from Seattle, Karen Lindvig, allegorizing the stones and all that kind of nonsense. He'll get into it about halfway through the sermon. We'll point it out along the way. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is contestant number one for the 2018 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Here is Stephen Furtick. Chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Who's going to do it? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't freak out. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples. In other words, you can look, but don't stay long because he is not here in this dead place. He, He is not here. He is risen. So go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from... I wonder what you're running from today. Um, yeah, what are you running from today? That's ridiculous. Yeah, he's already twisting the text while reading it. Because sometimes when life disappoints our expectations... Yeah, life just totally disappointed the expectations of these women. Yeah, uh uh-huh. We find ourselves hiding from the very places that we came to looking for God. They fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And on that note, Mark's gospel ends. It's an anticlimactic ending. It's not how we would expect it to end, but that's how it ends. And there is an announcement for this Easter that I want to give to you. In fact, I want you to give it to your neighbor. So pick one. 
Look them in the eyes and give them my sermon title for Easter 2018. Tell them, neighbor, it can't end like this. Look at your other neighbor, the one you were secretly hoping you'd get to talk to. Tell them it can't end like this. Father, anoint your word and open our hearts to hear it in Jesus' name. By the way, that's uh, repeat, turn and repeat to your neighbor and say these words technique. That is a psychological manipulation technique that is designed. It is a, it is a technique designed to lower barriers of skepticism and doubt and help build trust in the person that is preaching. Mm -hmm. Because if you do something that somebody tells you to do, your brain says, well, you're obeying them so you can trust them. It is a manipulation technique. Amen. You may be seated. I'm certainly no parenting expert, but from what I can tell, a large percentage of successful parenting revolves around timing. And understanding when your kids are ready for certain things, certain forms of discipline, uh, certain conversations. Um, the other day it became apparent to me that my oldest son, Elijah, was ready to watch the movie Rudy for the first time. How many have never seen the movie Rudy? We want to give an altar call right now that your soul might be spared from the flames of hell. You are in danger. I was saving Rudy. Yeah, Rudy's a great movie. I mean, okay, but what does it have to do with the resurrection of Christ? For him, for the moment that I thought he could, he could fully appreciate the beauty of the story of triumph of, of Dan Rudy Rudiger. It's based on a true story. What does that mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> but the Hollywood version is great because this kid who wanted to play for Notre Dame, hands up again if you've never seen the movie. I should cancel this sermon and just show the... <laughs> I feel so bad for you. It's a beautiful movie, especially the ending. It's the last five minutes that's going to get you. I'm just warning you, don't watch it around anybody that you don't want to seem soft in front of. Because the last five, if you have a soul, the last five minutes after Rudy has applied and reapplied to Notre Dame and sacrificed everything in the face of people who said he could never do it, it's just the end. The movie's kind of slow, but if you can make it to the end. And uh, I wanted Elijah to see Rudy because he's playing football. And uh, he's starting to understand that his genetics aren't necessarily on his side <laughs> and putting some things together. So I say, you're ready for Rudy. And we watched Rudy. Now, my, my wife and I, if you're new to the church, I share a lot from our personal life. Um, maybe too much sometimes. We, we don't. Oh, I agree. Every sermon is all about you. And now you've turned this into an all about you sermon. You're preaching about yourself, not the risen Jesus. Lot. We don't fight that much over money. We have fought over money, but we don't fight much over money. Um, there was that one time with the, yeah, but, but usually <laughs> she tells me she got it on sale and I go with it and that's kept our, our marriage happy. So we don't fight over money and I have more shoes in my closet than she does. Let's be honest. So we don't fight over uh, money, but, um, we, we don't fight over parenting. One thing we do fight over though, we sometimes fight over movies because we like different kinds of endings. She likes the ending where they end up together on a beach. I like the movie where everybody's dead in the end. I don't know what that says about me, but no, but before you think she's the, the angel, my wife, this is one time I, I only questioned whether I should have married her one time. It was too late by this point for me to reevaluate, but 
uh, it was the first time we watched Rudy together. And you know, Rudy wants to play for Notre Dame and they start him in the last game and Rudy runs out of the tunnel and it's such a beautiful moment. And the first time we watched Rudy together, of course, I'd seen it multiple times by this point, um, with tears in my eyes because I have a heart. I looked over at Holly to find her rolling her eyes. And she said, quote, that's the stupidest story I've ever seen. If you're clapping right now, we got security. I will take you out of the church. There's a lot of people who want your seat. No, she said, to, to me, Rudy was a story of triumph of the human spirit. To her, it was a story of a kid who lacked self-awareness. Somebody needed to tell him and he needed to believe you were not, you're not a football player, Rudy. You need to practice piano, Rudy. Holly's ideal ending of Rudy would be him playing the piano because he was better at that all along and gave up on his dreams because she is a soul crusher. So I was looking over at Elijah, you know, the last five minutes of, of Rudy. And I wanted to see, I didn't want him to see that I was looking at him because I was hoping he had a soul, hoping he took after me. And he looks at me and goes, you know what would be awesome? Rudy's running out on the field. He's about to get carried off on the shoulders after he goes in for one play. And uh, Elijah said, if they did a different ending for Rudy, where he goes in the game and screws up and ruins the whole season for the whole team. And I said, go sit with your mom, you demon. But, uh, now you know that as far as rhetorical skills, the ability to hold an audience in the palm of his hand and entertain them, oh man, there are few that are better than Furtick. And that's not the critique. That's not the critique at all. It's the content of the theology that we're looking at here. A different ending. A different ending. Um, I know you thought I forgot about Mark 16. I didn't. We've, we've been in a series called Savage Jesus in our church. Don't be shocked. Don't be frightened. When we say savage, we certainly don't have in mind the dictionary definition of savage in reference to the Son of God. We just mean that he did whatever it took, whether it's flipping tables in a temple or, as you heard in that beautiful Easter opener, spitting in blind eyes to get them open. Whatever he had to do, even if he had to make a mess, he always got the message across. And so this study from Mark's gospel has brought us all the way to chapter 16. Last week we were in chapter 2. I had to skip to the end for this occasion called Easter. And it's kind of shocking. It's kind of an alternate ending. It's kind of what Elijah always wanted from Rudy. Because we don't see Jesus at all. We don't see the appearance of the risen Christ. We see that in Matthew's gospel. We see that in Luke's gospel because there are four different gospel accounts. It's the same story, but just told four different ways from four different perspectives for four different audiences with four different major themes, but one main character. And when Mark gets ready to end his gospel, there is no appearance of Jesus. There is only an announcement. Now, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. We walk by faith and not by sight. 
And so Mark's gospel ends in a most unsatisfactory manner. If you're reading along in your own copy of the Bible, you may see verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. But those were put there much later by second century scribes. Now, he's right there. He's done his homework. The, the, the long ending of Mark is not part of the original autographs. Actually, the, all of the evidence shows the long ending of Mark probably was not penned by Mark. The oldest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, after they had been transcribed for centuries, took on some additions. It was almost as if the ending and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid whoever was copying it thought, well, it can't end like this. Come on, we got to get Rudy out of the tunnel and we got to get Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene and we got to get the amazing. So the reason for the Rudy analogy is because Jesus is like Rudy. Oh boy. Yeah, already this thing is off. <laughs> the, the wheels have come off on this sermon. Road that Luke writes about, and we got to talk about how he appeared to the 11 and they didn't believe at first. And we got to get the part where he told them they would have authority over demons. And, and we got to get verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. That is the, that is the Rudy resurrection with the 11 disciples carrying Jesus off on their shoulders to the mountain Galilee where he proclaimed and professed his authority. But it ends in the original manuscript on a note of uncertainty. It ends right there, right there. There, there, there. There's a tendency for us sometimes to want to make faith something that it's not. I wonder, can I preach to you today like we're real people? It may be that people outside of the faith sometimes get the wrong idea about the nature of faith, and they think that faith is chiefly a matter of imagination. So people who have faith have really good ability to suspend their disbelief and think about this world that doesn't really exist. But faith for me is not a matter of imagination. It's a matter of interpretation. Um, what? What I mean by that is for me, faith is not a denial of reality, but it is a deeper reality than the reality that I see that governs the way that I live. This is the essence of faith in Mark's gospel. It is always a demonstration. It is not always visible, but just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't real. And isn't it power? Yeah, keep in mind that the other gospels make it clear that Jesus physically appeared to the disciples. Just because it's not in the short ending of Mark doesn't mean that it didn't happen. This is weird. And profound that the greatest demonstration of God's power came in the moment when Jesus wasn't there. Yeah, I would refer you back to Luke and John's gospel and even Matthew's gospel. But we read out Luke and John where Jesus says, touch me, see, put your hand here, all these things. Uh huh. The greatest demonstration of God's power was his absence in the place where the women looked for him. Touch yeah, no. So next to you and say, it can't end like this. It can't end like this. And sometimes our faith leaves us at a place of frustration. The atmosphere of this text in Mark chapter 16 is an atmosphere of frustration. Specifically for... The atmosphere of frustration. How do you figure? These women. And I wanted to call this message hidden figures 
but I figured only one movie reference per Easter sermon. And so I had remarkable restraint not to call the sermon Hidden Figures about Mary Magdalene and, and Mary and, uh, and uh, Salome. Looking for a baby name, consider Salome. Um, they bought spices. Now remember, Peter in the garden drew a sword because he had strength as long as he was in control of the outcome. What? What? But if you look on Sunday morning, Jesus has been dead now for three days, according to the Jewish way of counting days. And these women, they didn't draw swords in the garden. They had a different kind of strength. Why would they need to draw swords in the garden? These spice girls, watch out, had the kind of quiet strength that would enable them even in the midst of disappointment. To still go to the place where their dream died. No, 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 wait, whoa, no, no, no. Their dream didn't die. Their Lord died. Their God died. Because they believe that Jesus was Lord in the Old Testament sense. And they worshipped him. So we've got a big problem here. Jesus' death is not synonymous with your dreams or my dreams dying. And notice how he snuck it in. He is so sneaky in his ability to twist and manipulate a text that if you don't pay attention, you miss how the transitions take place. The best they could with what they had. Notice who is missing in the text. It's not only Jesus who's missing in the text. He was expected to be in the grave and he wasn't there. But where is Peter? Where is Peter waving his sword and talking so loud? Have you ever noticed how sometimes the loudest people aren't the most loyal? I noticed it at a Panthers game. There was a lady in front of me. She was so loud, she was gone in the third quarter too. Because sometimes the people who are the loudest are not the most loyal. That's a dating seminar and it's Easter. I'm giving you bonus material. Where's Peter? This is what the women are trying to figure out because the men who should have been with them to help them move the stone away. Remember, it's much easier to roll the stone that, that is at the mouth of this cave, which we call a tomb, but it's more like a cave. And Mark points out a detail. He says, it was a very heavy stone, so we can't do this by ourselves. And upon realizing that we've got the spices, watch this, but we don't have the strength to roll the stone away. I think it's an indictment on the men. I think it is an indictment on the 11 disciples. I thought there were 12. Judas is dead. It's already a different thing for him. He's already gone. He couldn't hang on. He couldn't face himself after it. And Peter, well, well, Peter, who's going to preach in 50 days on the day of Pentecost, is so disappointed. Disappointed. Um. Where, which biblical text said he was disappointed? Was he disappointed in himself? That he can't potentially show his face. Or maybe he doesn't want to venture out into the darkness. And Maybe that's shame. Because after he denied Christ three times, he wept bitterly. Greater disappointment. I found out that the greater the faith the deeper 
the disappointment. How do you figure? When you really believe in something, and this is why some of you don't expect much out of life anymore. It is your defense mechanism against disappointment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. The greater his faith. Now he's experiencing great disappointment because apparently his dream died too. And you're not expecting things out of life, uh-huh, right, because of disappointment and stuff. Because if you don't venture out, you don't have to be vulnerable. Hope, hope is very vulnerable. Faith is very fragile. Hope for what exactly? Puts you in a place where you're actually expecting something. And as Peter stood there considering the cost of this. What was Peter expecting? Discipleship in the shadow of the cross. It shot through his central nervous system that this was the end. And he's not with the women. Neither is James. Neither is John for that matter. Or Bartholomew. There were plenty of people who could have been with them, but they weren't. And so now the women, they got their spices. They're not talking much. It's not a, a happy processional, but they're on their way. And on their way, they realize, hey, wait a minute. When we get there, we can't do what we need to do to do what we came to do. Because we, we have spices, but we're not strong enough. Have you ever felt like there was something in your way? Now, it could be depression. Oh, yeah. See that stone? Did you ever feel like there's something in your way? He just did the exact same thing that uh, that Mrs. Len, uh, Lindvig did, Karen Lindvig, in the sermon that we played in the first segment in the first hour. He's allegorizing the stone. It could be addiction. It could be genetics. It could be your history. Yeah, the stone in front of the tomb of Jesus is not an allegory of your depression or anything like that. It could be your mental, your mental conditioning. Have you ever felt like there was something in your way that no matter how great or how high your faith would rise or become, there was something in your way, some stone in your way? I love what the Bible says because the women are walking and they're worried. Well, you Isn't it troubling to you that he twists the Bible in the exact same way as that liberal woman? Weird can't do it. Well, you can't do it either. Well, Mary, you should have. Well, don't tell me what I should have done, Salome. I'm not the one whose mom named her after a deli meat. You should have done it. You should have thought, where's Peter? But instead of resenting who wasn't with them, they asked the question, who will roll the stone away? I got good gospel news this Easter. God is already working out what you're worried about. God no, that's not good news. The good news is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and rose again bodily on the third day. Already has your miracle in motion if you will take a step in faith. No, no, let me back that up so that you can hear that nonsense again in context. Easter, God is already working out what you're worried about. God already has your miracle in motion if you will take a step in faith. No, he doesn't. What Stephen Furtick just said is a flat-out lie. No biblical text says it. God has not promised any of this. The Bible says when they got there, not only was the stone gone, but there was a young man, most theologians believe because of the synoptic gospel accounts that confirmed the report, that this was an angel 
who had not only rolled the stone away, but sat down on it. Now, the reason he sat down is not because he was tired. Uh, which gospel tells us the reason that the angel was sitting on the stone? How do you know the reason if the Bible doesn't tell you the reason? This angel did CrossFit and had excellent cardiovascular conditioning. Now, How do you know this wasn't a nerdy angel? How do you know? This angel came down, rolled the stone, and sat down because in Jewish custom, when a teacher got ready to teach, they sat in a seat of authority. So the mm, Yeah, so that's the reason he was sitting down. No biblical text says that. ...is this. What you thought you couldn't get through, I'm already over. What you thought you could... Oh, this is utter nonsense. Total pablum. Yeah, this is, you know, pseudo-profound nonsense here. ...do has already been done, and all power... Are there any Easter people in this section? And authority belongs to Jesus. And I believe stones still roll. I'm sure you do, yeah. I believe God is working on what you're worried about. Why would you stay up late crying about? See, we don't understand a lot of times what's happening as we're walking. This is utter narcissism. He's filling these heads, these people's heads with nonsense. This text is not about anything they're going through. This is about the physical bodily resurrection of the crucified Jesus. It's happening as we're walking. Uh, Matthew gives us a detail that Mark omitted. Because he said that at some point while these women between 3 and 6 a.m. in the darkness of despair, doubt, and disappointment, this is the atmosphere of the text, and in their great frustration because of their lack of strength and ability, while they were walking, God was working. While they were walking, God was working. Watch the second verse of the last chapter of Matthew. It's a, it's a different ending. It's a little bit of a different detail that, that we don't get in Mark's gospel. It says that, behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat down on it. The angel was already on the way while the women were walking to the tomb. I dare you to look at maybe the reason why they were already on the way is because they knew that Jesus was about to rise from the grave. Mm hmm. Somebody and say your angel is already on the way. Oh, my goodness. This is awful. Let me back this up. Listen again. I dare you to look at somebody and say your angel is already on the way. No, there's no angel that's promised that's already on the way, apparently to move the obstacles away from you, you know, your your addictions and your depressions and things like that. This is so duplicitous. So don't stress out about it, and don't you dare turn around and go back home, because while you're worrying, God is working. God does some of his best work in the dark. And just because you can't see it, doesn't mean it's not in progress. Can't end like this. You think God would let these women get all the way to the tomb 
and let a stone stand in their way. God says, when you do what you can do, I will do what you cannot do. I'll help you. Yeah, which biblical text says that when you do what you can do, I'll do what I can do? That's actually not in the Bible. That's in the Book of Mormon. Raise those kids. I'll help you stay married to that man. I'll help you make it through another week. I'll help you. Help is on the way. That's easy. Oh, he's got these people whipped up into uh, an emotional frenzy, and he's feeding them absolute pablum. It can't end in frustration. It can't end in my frustration. And it can't end in failure either. It can't end in frustration. It can't end in failure. Rudy can't lose. Touch somebody and say, it can't end like this. See, when you know the director, you have a pretty good sense of how the film is going to end. God, I wish somebody came to help me preach and not just look at me today. Another manipulation technique. And of course, he employs a volunteer group up near the front. They call it the bullpen. Their whole job is to gawk, ooh, and ah, and stand up and clap and and make it sound like, oh, these are pearls from heaven that we couldn't get nowhere else except for from the hand and the mouth of Stephen Furtick. When you know who made the movie, when you know how it ends, when Jesus sat down with Peter, he said, you're going to fail. You're going to deny me not once. Not twice, but check out this King James English. Thrice. By the time the rooster crows, but don't worry about it, Peter. I've got a job for you to do on the other side of failure. No, actually, Jesus says, I've prayed for you. Yeah, read the text. When the angel said, I, I'm going to meet you in Galilee, it was more than a geographical arrangement. It was a statement of mission. For many of you remember that Galilee was the place where Jesus did most of his miracles. It was the place where he first called Peter. It was the Sea of Galilee where Peter took Jesus all around to preach and heal and deliver. So when the angel said, your story can't end here, turn around. The angel did not say that. He'll tell the disciples that I will meet them in Galilee. He was saying in effect... This can't end in a grave because there's something more that I want to do. Meet me in Galilee. Now that's good news all on its own. For you to know that God is not through with you. For you to know that if the devil could have killed you, he would have by now. For you to know that... What? testimony of your purpose is that oh the testimony of my purpose apparently that's what the resurrection accounts are all about nope they're not about that at all very fact of your survival the fact that you're still here well that's a reason to celebrate i think this is my favorite easter message i've ever studied because of two words. Go tell his disciples, verse 7, please, and Peter. That hit me hard. That the one who disappointed Jesus the most deeply was the one he singled out by name for redemption. It does talk about the gospel for sure, and that Christ bled and died for his sins of denial. 
And it gives me this hope that maybe my name can go there too. I'm going back to Galilee because I don't believe this story ends at a grave. It can't end like this. Go tell Peter to start practicing. Practicing what? Practicing his preaching. Tell him to get all of his fishing out of his system because I need him in 50 days. I need him on the day of Pentecost when the spirit comes. I want the one who failed the greatest to be the trophy of my triumph and transformation. And there is someone here who is standing over a grave of your own failure today, not realizing that resurrection is an expectation that allows you to experience life, not through the lens of your failure, but through the lens of grace. By failure, do you mean sin? That's a really beautiful truth for Peter. But until it is personal for you, you will stay stuck in what God has called you out of. What? Until what is true for me, I'll be stuck in what God has called me. What has God called me out of exactly? It it can't end. I know it can't end. Like this. I know that my story can't end in failure because God has already promised me his grace. Grace for what exactly? For every failure that I would face in this life. How about sin that you would commit? Notice he's shaved off the hard edges of what God's word reveals regarding our sin and rebellion and how we've fallen short of the glory of God and need to be forgiven by what Christ has done for us on the cross, he's not talking in those terms. This is a different thing altogether. And Peter. And Peter. Make sure you... make sure. P.S. Tell Peter. I want to put that in an Easter message one year. P.S. Tell Peter. Tell the one that snuck into church, that really doesn't even want to be here, I'll meet you in Galilee. No, Jesus isn't promising to meet any of us in Galilee. This is not good. I hear, you hear the guy say, oh, this is so good. No, this is nonsense and a narcissistic twisting of the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Christ. Failure is not the end. It's the hinge. It's the hinge on which the doors of God's grace swing wide open for you to experience his forgiveness at a greater level. Don't you see it, Peter? He called you by name. And the women responded in a surprising way. You know, I never could get over this. I understand why they were so disappointed when he died. But I never got why they were so surprised. He told them this three times. I'm going to die. They're going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to spit on me. But after three days, dot, dot, dot. I view resurrection a little differently now. I used to think resurrection was God's exclamation point. You know, it is finished. He is risen. 
dots. But now I see it more like three dots. Now I see Easter as the ellipses of heaven. Now I see Easter, those three days, as three dots. To see whether or not your story is going to end here. What? (laughs) My story is going to end there? What are you talking about? In your fear? Because the final note of Mark's gospel is fear. They were afraid. It's such a strange note to end on. It's such a crazy way to end your gospel. Maybe there was more to the manuscript, I don't know, and it got lost. That's one theory. Or maybe verse 9 is up to us. Verse 9 is up to us. Mm -hmm. I know scholars who talk about the fact that uh, Mark's gospel was the gospel that Peter preached from. These were the preaching notes of Peter. And it ending with, and they were afraid, would then be followed by the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection from the eyewitnesses that were present with him when he was preaching, which I think is probably one of the best explanations I've heard. But then again, it is a theory, but it's a really good one. Maybe, maybe fear is not the end. Maybe it's an invitation. You see, in Mark's gospel, fear is an invitation. Wow. Usually when it talks about fear, something comes after it. In Mark's gospel, there, there's a pattern that emerges. It's, it's over and over again in Mark's gospel. So like in chapter 5, there's a woman who has an issue, an, an issue of blood, and nobody can make her better. The Bible says that she spent all that she had, but instead of getting better, she got worse. She, she shoved more stuff into her life. She got busier and she just got broker. She, she spent more time trying to be liked and she only felt more lonely. And- uh, no, no, you are adding to the text. That woman, because of her issue of blood for 12 years, she was unclean and unable, according to the law of, the, of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, to participate in the worship community there. She had been excluded because she was ceremonially and unclean and had been for 12 years. What you just said about her trying harder, but it only got lonelier is nonsense. Comes up and touches Jesus and everybody wants to know who did it because there was a big crowd around and they didn't know, but she did. So the Bible says that trembling, she fell down in fear on her face before Jesus. But it wasn't the end of the story. Because when Mark says fear, something follows. She fell down in fear and trembling before Jesus because Jesus stopped after she had touched the hem of his garments, the sitzioth off of his uh, garments, you know, the tassels. Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? That's the reason why she was having fear and trembling because Jesus asked the question, who touched me? She wasn't supposed to be touching nobody. Yeah, you get the idea. It's not the end. Touch somebody say it's not the end. It's a new beginning. And after her fear, Jesus looked at her and said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now go in peace. Because fear is not the end. Fear is the beginning. Right after this, a man named Jairus has a little daughter who has died while Jesus is on his way to heal her. 
The crowd says, don't worry about it. She's already dead. Jesus said, no, she's just asleep. Don't be afraid, Jairus, because when I get there, something is going to happen. That it- Jesus said, do not fear, believe. Read the text. Going to overrule and overturn the verdict of earthly principles. She's going to get up. And the little girl got up because fear is not the end. One night, the disciples were in a great storm. The wind was blowing so hard, they thought, surely we're going down this time. No, you can't die here. There's something left for you to do. The Bible says they were greatly afraid, but fear was not the end. The moment they felt the fear, Jesus spoke the word, peace, be still. I feel him. No, actually, Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am. Read the text. Peace to somebody today. Fear is not the end. It can't end like this. It can't end like this. God's got more for you to do. He's got more for you to do. I'm not there. What are you talking about? Meet me in Galilee. Dot, dot, dot. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The stone is already rolled. God has already done what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. I know you're weak. I know you're frustrated, but frustration is not the end. Frustration is the hinge on which the door to surrender swings wide open. Did you read that on a Hallmark greeting card? No biblical text says that either. To say I need you to do for me, God, what I can't do for myself. It's not the end. Your failure is not the end. They're called sins. God's going to use the one who knows their need for grace. In order for that to happen, you need to preach God's law so they recognize their sinful condition. And their need for a savior. That's straight out of Romans chapter 3. Others, what his grace is capable of. It can't end like this. Your story can't end in this grave. You are needed in Galilee, Peter. There's more for you to do. It can't end like this. It can't end in fear. What if those women would have stayed silent? We know that they didn't. We know that they went and told the disciples, and we know that the disciples' first instinct was fear. Because the starting point of faith is always fear. It's always scary to step out and trust God. What exactly am I trusting him for again? It's always risky to make yourself vulnerable. But what if I come to God, and what if it doesn't work? What doesn't work? Jesus promises us the forgiveness of our sins. That's what he won on the cross. And his victorious resurrection from the grave shows that his sacrifice was accepted. Shows that he is who he claimed to be, God in human flesh. Uh Uh-huh. And what if it ends on a cross? See, even if it ends on... What ends on a cross? Cross. It doesn't end on the cross.
This is your. He is the master of saying nothing while convincing everybody he said something profound, but he's literally said nothing. Okay. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Stand to your feet right where you are. This is a resurrection moment for somebody. Uh, What? How do you figure? With no one moving. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience to make help them make decisions of one kind or another. I'm not sure what we're deciding here. I believe that God is calling someone out of your grave today. Our graves look like shame. The grave of shame. Our graves look like religion. Mm-hmm. Which this is, by the way. This is a different religion than Christianity. But it is a religion. Our graves look like us trying to roll a heavy stone away that we can't push no matter how hard we try. Mm-hmm. There was no one who tried to push the stone away and failed. Yeah, where did you get that? But the stone has already been rolled away. The price has already been paid. The price for what exactly? And the end game of Jesus Christ is grace. The end game is grace. No idea what he means by it, but he just throws these words out. And you're going to note that by throwing the phrases out like this, the unsuspecting Christian just assumes he's he means what the Bible says by those things. But he clearly doesn't. God has brought you to this moment to receive his grace. Grace for what? And right now it's my privilege to pray with you for every Peter, for every Mary, for every Salome who has been in a season of disappointment. And you are realizing now. He's going to pray for people who are in seasons of disappointment rather than dead in trespasses and sins. Weird. Your desperate need. For God, we're going to pray a prayer right now. And it is for those who need to experience the salvation and resurrection power of God. Salvation from what? So in this moment, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. I've got good news for you. You will be saved. Saved from what? You haven't preached God's law to convict them of their sins. Jesus said in Luke 24 that repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You haven't done that. Jesus is Lord of my disappointments. That is not a biblical confession that can save you. Even if you have to do it with your hands shaking like the women did as they went from the tomb. Even if you're staring at a stone or a life situation. Are you staring at a stone? I'm looking at a stone-cold heart in Furtick. He clearly doesn't have a heart of flesh. Chains you can't break. It's already been done. Even if you feel like you've wasted time, God can redeem what's left and turn every mistake in your life into a miracle. But it begins with faith. It is by grace we are saved through faith. This not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Again, what am I being saved from? So that no one can boast. And it starts with admitting that I am a sinner. Ah, finally, right there at the very end, just as he's about ready to pray, 
He mentions the word sin, slips it in, but it doesn't make any sense in the context of the whole sermon. And I need a savior. And so right now in this moment, if you are ready to come to God, we're going to pray out loud as a church family for the benefit of those who are coming to God or coming back to God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you pray this prayer from your heart, God will hear you from heaven, forgive your sins and give you a new heart. Uh You haven't been preaching about sins. You've been preaching about, well, failures and, and broken and dashed dreams and stones being in the way of our purpose and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so his throwing in the word sin there at the very end adds only confusion rather than clarity. Yeah, I think you get the point. So that's contestant number one in this year's 2018 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is by death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>